I've told you guys this before, I think, but I don't know if you all will remember it. Theodore Roosevelt had a lot of different ways that he would get exercise, and you might be aware of some of them if you have read much about him. He's a really interesting historical figure. But one of the ways he would get exercise is would have, was to go out into the wilderness and pick just a line, a direction, and then he would walk that direction, and anything that he encountered as he walked that direction, he would not go around it. If it was a big fallen tree, he would climb over it or scurry under it. If it was a creek, he would make his way across it. If it was a pond, he would swim across it. And that's how he would get exercised, by just going straight through whatever obstacle confronted him in the woods that day. And I suggest that to any of you. If you're looking to get in shape, you might want to try that. In my determination to primarily preach through books of the Bible, that's, that's what we have been doing for our spiritual exercise every week for years now. And today we come to an interesting obstacle. Today we come to a strange and disturbing episode in Old Testament history, in Genesis chapter 19. And we're not going to go around it. We're going to climb over it, scurry under it, swim across it, whatever we need to do. We are going to receive Genesis chapter 19 because all of God's word is profitable. It's inspired by him, it's valuable, and it'll be good for us. As we enter our passage in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels that had accompanied the Lord in our previous passage are proceeding to Sodom, and that's where we pick up in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now remember, Lot was Abraham's nephew. They left Abraham's home place together when God first called him to the promised land. Eventually, their flocks and their herdsmen and all their stuff became too great for them to really continue to stick together. There began, there began to be friction because their clans were getting so large, and so they separated. And Abraham told Lot, you pick what direction you want to go, and I'll go the other direction. And Lot looked around, and he picked what seemed to him to be the most fertile land, and he went that direction, and he settled here among these cities like Sodom here. Now, he did that, even though Sodom's reputation was already pretty widespread in Genesis 13, 13, said, now the, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, but that's where Lot settled. And here he is sitting at the gate, which in this ancient culture may have meant that he had an official position in the city. He might have been considered like a town elder or something, because a lot of official city business would take place at the gate. And that's where he sat as these angels approached. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. So Lot sees these angels approaching. They seem to him to just be men. And he responds in humility and with great hospitality as you might hope and expect, but he receives them as travelers, not as angels. To him, they just look like men. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So this all seems quite nice so far in this passage. It uh, seems like a pretty nice story. But this peaceful story of, of hospitality and reception soon turns dangerous 
as a mob begins to form outside of Lot's house. Verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, verse 4 makes it clear this is not just a couple of bad seeds. These are not just a couple of hoodlums in the otherwise good city. This is a united, comprehensive effort of the men of Sodom. It says every one of them, from all ages, young men, old men, they are all gathered outside of Lot's house. What does this ominous mob want? They say, bring out these men, these travelers, that we may know them. Now, if you read your Bibles, you have seen this word know used in different ways, and you're aware that it can be taken in one of two ways. It could just mean, hey, we'd like to get to know these guys. Uh, We'd like to become familiar with them. We haven't met them yet. Bring them out so we could meet them. But it could also have a whole different meaning, which is sexual intercourse. As in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, we want it to mean the former. We fear it might mean the latter. And so we read on into verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So Lot sees these men and their request to bring out the travelers so that they could know them as something wicked. He shimmies out the door and shuts it behind him, stands between the mob and the men, and tries to urge them to stop what they are doing. Now, in this ancient culture, if you received foreign travelers into your home under your roof, you assumed responsibility for their safety and welfare, and that was taken very seriously in that ancient culture. They didn't have holiday inns on every exit, and when people traveled, they were very vulnerable And so it was just a a norm societally back then that if you took in travelers, you assumed full responsibility for them and keeping them safe in your city. And Lot perhaps had an official position in this city, so he may even also have been acting in an official capacity as he took these men into his house. So he puts himself between the mob and these men, and it seems pretty noble, but wait until we get to verse 8. Verse 8. Lot, still speaking to the mob, says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. This is just shocking and horrifying. Hard to even read out from the pulpit right now. Now, I think we can be pretty confident as we get to this usage of the word know in verse 8, what the passage means by the verb know. I think we can be pretty confident that this mob was there to sexually assault these travelers. And Lot, in trying to stop one act of evil, proposes an alternative act of evil. He offers his virgin daughters to the mob. Now, this is just impossible for us to understand. What we can say is that long ago and far away, the responsibility to protect travelers under your roof was so important that 
a threat as alarming as this pushed men to make horrible decisions. And I say men plural because, believe it or not, this is not the only place in Scripture where this happens. In Judges chapter 19, something very, very similar happens. And a similar decision is made with heartbreaking consequences. The text here doesn't explain it. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't condemn it. It just reports this is what happened. And knowing the full context of what we read last week, we see this as a clear example of the outcry that had been rising up to the Lord from this city. We see this as an example of just how wicked and evil this city had become. This was the kind of city where travelers were in danger of sexual assault, not just from a couple of hooligans in the streets, but from all the men in the city, all even acting together. This was the kind of city where residents like Lot might find themselves in a position where they could either be complicit with that kind of activity or they could face horrible consequences. So we read on because the passage moves on in verse 9. But they, the mob, the crowd outside of Lot's house, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn or, or travel or stay for a temporary period, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Lot had been with them for some time now. He was sitting at the city gates, possibly an elder of the town, but he had no real authority or influence over these men. They had no regard for his pleas for them to stop. They basically were just enraged that he would dare even try, saying basically, who do you think you are? And now they're done talking, and now they're going to take the house by force. Verse 10. But the men, referring to the two angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So they are supernaturally struck with blindness by these two angels. The angels rip Lot back into the house, shut the door, mob on the outside, Lot and his family on the inside with the angels. They supernaturally strike this mob of men blind. And what strikes me is that they don't retreat at this point. They're now blinded. They can't see. They don't relent. They, they wear themselves out, groping to find the door, still trying to carry out this act that they have gathered to do. They're like zombies outside of Lot's house. I just can't imagine the family inside the house. I can't imagine the daughters, if perhaps they could overhear Lot outside the door having this interaction with this mob. I can't imagine the fear and the terror that they must have been experiencing. Now, at the climax of the confrontation, the angels have fully taken charge of the situation. Now we're in verse 12. Then the men, referring to the angels, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So the angels are in charge now, and they say to Lot, get anybody that is yours in this city up and out of here because 
everything is about to be leveled to the ground. And Lot believes, and he obeys, and so he goes, and he does have sons-in-laws who are set to marry his daughters, and he goes to them and says, get up, get out of here. The Lord is about to destroy this place. And their response is, they think he's joking. What an odd little note in Scripture. I don't, it doesn't elaborate beyond that, so you just, all you can do is imagine maybe what that might mean about Lot's place in that society and, and Lot's reputation even among his own family. Did everybody just take him kind of as a joke? Did he often run around and be alarmed and say, God is going to destroy this place, as you might hear people say about our country sometimes when we see the evil around us? I don't know, but they did not listen to him. Crazy old Lot, here he goes again. He kept watching TV or whatever they were doing. He had no influence among the mob. He had no credibility among his sons-in-law. And he had no efficiency in escaping, as we continue reading in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. So the angels had to say, get up, let's go. Was he laying down? Did he go to sleep? I cannot imagine that he would have been doing anything but having his bag packed and standing at the door ready to go when the angels said so. But he lingered, the passage says. He was slow. They had to rush him. They had to hold his hand to get him and his family out of the city. Why were they helping him so much? Have you seen anything yet in the text that makes him seem like, yeah, this is somebody that these angels should really go out of their way to spare? Well, there's a clue here in verse 16. The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. So why were they being so helpful to him? It was the Lord's mercy, his pity and compassion upon him. He certainly hadn't earned it, and he needed a lot of it. He needed a lot of God's mercy, as we read on in verse 17. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Now, at this point, you would think one of the angels would turn to the other and say, I'm just going to smite him. I'm just going to go ahead and smite him here and now. And then the other angel says, no, remember, the Lord is having mercy on this one. So be compassionate, have pity on him. Don't smite him. And what is his obsession with cities? Why is it, this is just a little city. Let's let me live in this city. Verse 21, he, one of the angels, said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. Finally, they're on their way, and now it's time for the famous destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
If you don't know much about the Bible, you probably still have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know that they had a reputation for being evil and that God destroyed them from the face of the earth. Now we have arrived at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So the investigation was complete. God said he was going to go and he was going to check it out and just confirm that the outcry that had risen to him was accurate and that the evil things that had been going on in there were indeed going on there and they were indeed evil. That is clear now. And now he has overthrown these cities and it is utter and complete. Everyone is dead. All vegetation is dead. It is now a wasteland. The emphasis in the verse is that God did this. This was not just a natural disaster that God later took credit for. God did this. It said the Lord rained sulfur and fire from the Lord. It repeats it. He overthrew these cities. Sulfur and fire, you should probably picture something like a volcanic eruption, but in this case, it says it was raining down from heaven, so it would be coming down rather than up out of the earth. It's coming down from God himself upon Sodom and Gomorrah. All the inhabitants gone, all the vegetation gone. It is over for Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his wife and his daughters barely escaping, and one doesn't quite make it, as we read in verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So we've seen Lot linger and negotiate with the angels and not be efficient in his escape, but he basically did do what the angels asked of him. The wife here, however, directly disobeyed what the angels told her to do. Back in verse 17, if you remember, they said, Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley, lest you be swept away. And she stopped and she looked back. That word to look back in the Hebrew is more than just like a glance at the spectacle. It's to look with regard and consideration. So perhaps she looked back with some regret over the fact that the city was being destroyed. Perhaps her heart wasn't in escaping. We don't know for sure. But she was swept away, or as it says here, she became a pillar of salt. Now, when I was a kid, I pictured like salt on my dinner table, just in the shape of a woman or in the shape of a pillar. I never really could wrap my mind around it, and I have to be honest, I still can't quite wrap my mind around it. Uh, It might be that she was covered in the sulfur that was raining down, kind of like the residents of Pompeii. You you remember Vesuvius exploded, and they got covered in ash in such a way that it entombed them, and they were, like, fossilized. Maybe it's talking about that. Maybe over time her remains got covered in it, or maybe she genuinely just, God said, pillar of salt, pillar of salt. The Bible, I just, it doesn't elaborate on the things you want it to elaborate on. It just keeps moving. But she suffered the consequences. Rather than elaborating on that, it, it just states it, and then it moves it back to Abraham. Abraham, maybe roughly 20 miles away, looks in the direction of Sodom. Verse 27, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where, we, where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, And toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
what I picture there is Abraham looks into the distance and just sees the smoke. I remember my grandfather's heater outside of his house. He had one of those big outdoor fireplaces that the heat of which was used through ducts into the house for any heating needs in the house for the, the air temperature, but also for the water to heat it up. And so he just kept a blazing inferno going in that thing all the time. I think he also, he just liked chopping firewood and dealing with firewood and having fire going. But often you would look over and you would just see smoke or you would, you would smell it in our house across the field from him. And so what I picture is you imagine a, a chimney with smoke, thick smoke coming out of it. Imagine that, but instead of it coming out of a chimney, it coming from the entire footprint of a city. So like if we looked in the direction of Matthews and just saw smoke rising up into the clouds, that's what Abraham saw when he looked into the direction of Sodom. And then with verse 29, our passage ends with a verse that summarizes everything. Verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. So in verse 16, we saw that Lot was spared because the Lord was merciful upon him. He was compassionate and had pity on him. Here in verse 29, we see that Lot was spared because God remembered Abraham. When it says that God remembered someone like this, usually what it means is he is calling to mind and acting on his covenant promises and his commitments to a person. It's not that he forgot Abraham. He's like, oh, yeah, Abraham. Okay, I'll save his nephew Lot. He's acting on what he promised Abraham. So God spared him mercifully by counting him right alongside a righteous man with whom he had made a covenant. And when we get to that point, we Christians start to sense that we are a lot more like Lot than we might want to believe, especially looking at some of his behavior in this passage. And Lot is a lot more like us than we might want to believe. Though he was often foolish, seemed like he was acting sinfully and wrong, he was spared because God mercifully counted him alongside a righteous counterpart with whom he had made a covenant. It turns out, as flawed as he was, that actually is who he was. That verse that I mentioned at the beginning of the service, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7-8 through 8 says, God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So even underneath the surface of all of his folly and all of his weird decisions and things he did, he was torn up inside by the unrighteousness around him. This actually is who he was. Now, I think we can relate to him. Imagine if the worst episodes of your life were recorded in a book. Think back to the things you are the very most ashamed of, the things you've said, the things you've done. Imagine that was recorded in a book, and someone read that. Do you think that they would naturally think that you were a righteous person? Do you think it would be easy for them to be like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, Matt, Matt's a righteous person. He ought to be the pastor of a church. No, it wouldn't make any sense at all. The only reason any of us can be counted righteous is by 
God's mercy, his compassion and pity toward us, and because he remembers the covenant that he made with a righteous person that he allows us to be associated with. For Lot, it was Abraham. For us, it is Jesus Christ. We are the recipients of his mercy. We are spared from his wrath only because he remembers Jesus. And his wrath is coming back. And this is something we'll visit more during the next hour in the fellowship hall. But Sodom and Gomorrah are used in the New Testament quite a bit to remind God's people that God will punish the ungodly. And there will come a day when Jesus returns. And it will be similar to this. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. It will be fire and brimstone. And the only ones who will be spared are those who are counted righteous because God remembers them in his covenant with Jesus Christ. So it's actually a very fitting passage to segue into the Lord's Supper. Jesus told us to eat bread and drink this, drink regularly to remember Jesus Christ, to remember that it is only in him that we can be counted righteous before God. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to pivot to the Lord's Supper. And as we do, I want you to just remember how much mercy you have received, how much patience you have received from God. Let it fill you with a sense of humility. Let it fill you with a sense of gratitude. Let it fill you with a sense of awe at God's patience and mercy and grace and goodness and kindness toward you through Jesus Christ. Let it have the effect of softening your heart toward others. Perhaps there are others in your life that you have felt harshly toward because they are acting like Lot. Well, remember that you too have acted like Lot. And you have been the recipient of a great deal of forgiveness. And now you can offer that to others as well. So let's pray and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for recording this history in your word. It's not a passage we would choose to dwell on very often, but I'm glad it's there and I'm glad you brought it before us this morning. And I'm grateful that you are so merciful and forgiving to people like Lot and like myself, and like every one of us in this room who do not deserve it, we didn't earn it, often we fall short of it. But thank you for counting us righteous alongside Jesus. As we receive this bread and this cup, renew our faith in him, renew our allegiance to him, renew our determination to live up to the righteousness that you have given us through him. Our souls are tormented by the unrighteousness we see around us and inside of us. We too, like Lot, live in the midst of a wicked and crooked city and generation. Lord, help us to be like Jesus and not like Lot. Help us not to get swept into it, confused by it, make bad decisions because of it. We submit ourselves to you in every way, both for your salvation and your sanctification now in Jesus' name. Amen.